Well, um, as, as many of you know, the, the office space we rent for the church is uh, in a warehouse that's been converted to a number of different office type spaces. Uh, different, different businesses have space there. So, so for example, there's a, a person who has a pottery business and she rents a couple spaces in this converted warehouse where our church office is. Uh, there's a yarn company, much to my wife's excitement, that has an office and, and storage in that building. There's a person who builds stage backgrounds or stages backgrounds for, for big box stores. He's got a setup there that's, that's fairly interesting. He makes displays. There's a coffee roasting company, which smells very good. Uh, there, there are all kinds of these different businesses and groups that use the building where, where the office is. And, and it's a great space, but sometimes it can be a little interesting because one of the companies that rents in the building imports wine from all over Europe and then distributes that wine to various restaurants and, uh, and bottle shops and even some, some personal folks here in the Portland area. Uh, but what this means is about six times a year, the company gets an enormous amount of, of wine that shows up to the, to, to the uh, warehouse, upwards of thousands of bottles. And, and so sometimes I'll plan on meeting somebody at the office, and we come walking around the corner together, and as we come around the corner, there are just boxes and boxes and crates and crates of wine everywhere. Some of you have, have no doubt uh, see, seen that. Um, but all the way down the walkway and the different spaces backed up against a huge garage door everywhere, there are just these, these bottles and boxes of wine. It's like the whole place is full of it. And so there I am walking with somebody into my office to have an important conversation maybe. And on these occasions, I feel, I feel very compelled to stop and explain what in the world is going on. Uh, because how many pastor studies have you known that are occasionally surrounded by literally thousands of bottles of wine? Um, it, it, it's a spectacle. It's weird. Uh, and, and people know it's weird, and, and whatever the main reason might be that this person and I are meeting together in the office, before we could ever talk about whatever it is that we've planned to discuss, I've got to talk about the thousands of wine bottles. You, you just have to address this. Um, it's this strange element that has to be explained, because without explaining it, it is sufficiently distracting to ruin any hopes of having normal conversation. Uh, the person would just wonder what kind of crazy thing is going on here. Uh, so, so the point being, uh, to, to be able to pay attention to the main thing uh, that my office visitor and I maybe would plan to discuss, something has to be said about the strange thing first. Now, uh, there's a sense in which that principle holds true as we come to, to chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. In this section of Samuel, there's a main point, there, there's a main thing in, in 1 Samuel chapter 28 that we need to get out of this text. So, so in this text, there's, there's a main thing that centers on the fact that we have the beginning of, of David's ascension narrative, technically. So, so in this section, we actually begin with a contrast between David's rise and Saul's very rapid decline. This chapter starts things off with David being exalted as a, as a chief bodyguard for a Philistine king. There's David exalted. This chapter ends with Saul so low that he's laying on the ground in the house of a pagan spiritist, having just been told he's going to die tomorrow. Okay, So, so, so this chapter has a, has a main theme to it, in, in that it is a turning point in the narrative that we've been studying, where David is finally going to begin to rise to his position as the ascended king, and Saul is going to be done. It's really the start to that climax that we've been waiting for as we've studied out, studied out this story. So, so that's the main thing. David's exaltation begins, Saul's decline is imminent. It's, it's happening. And there's a whole bunch of truth in this passage about those two things. However, 
before we talk about that kind of main thing, which we'll do next week, uh, this is going to have to be one of those two passes over the chapter situations because before we talk about the main thing, we've got to address the weird thing. It's just too distracting here in this text to not say something about it, like walking past thousands of, of wine bottles to get to your friendly local pastor's office. It's just weird and you've got to say something about it. Right? And the weird thing in chapter 28 is that Saul goes to Endor to this medium. Now, literally, the Hebrew word for medium there is ghost mistress. Okay? So Saul, the king of Israel, goes to see a ghost mistress. And in so doing, we're told that she calls up the prophet Samuel from the abode of the dead. And Saul and Samuel have a conversation. That's weird. Right? That's strange. And it seems to me that before we can take some time to sort out the main point of this passage, which is the beginning of the exaltation of David, the deterioration of Saul, before we can get to that main thing, we've got to say something about this strangeness because it's just too distracting to leave these details unexplained, to not deal with them. We've got to get our heads around something of what's going on. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, what in the world are we to make of this narrative and the fact that apparently Samuel is called up by this ghost whisperer from the dead? How, how, how are we supposed to think about this? This is just strange stuff. Uh, like, like, for example, here, Samuel says to Saul in verse 19 that tomorrow Saul and his sons will be with him. So it's a reference to being with Samuel in the place of the dead. Tomorrow you're going to die is what Samuel is saying. But, but what's that about? Saul, Saul's unrighteous. We know Saul is a, is a wicked, unfaithful man. Samuel's righteous. Does everyone just go to the same place when they die, whether in the faith or not? You're going to be with me tomorrow, Samuel says. What in the world do we do with that? Right? Or, or how about that, that Saul goes to the medium, the spiritual, uh, spiritualist, and, and actually gets answers? Right? I mean, does that mean the practice is okay? There are places in Portland where you can go where people promise to read, read the energy in your cards and give you some guidance for, for your life as it goes forward. Is this an okay thing to do? This is a weird passage. So we could, we could skip through it quickly, or we could slow down and we could think it out, and we're going to slow down and think it out. We're going to do that. Because we need to know our Bibles, and we need to know what God's revelation makes clear. And, and along with that, while this is odd, there, there's actually a great deal of important truth for us to consider, just as we think in the, in the categories uh, that, are, that are presented here for us. So, so next week... It's going to be the beginning of David's rise and Saul's demise. That's next week. This week, it's going to be what in the world do we do with Saul and the ghost mistress of Endor? That's, that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, now, as, as we get started, uh, let's first take just a moment and, and set the scene. Uh, we'll, we'll come back and talk about this more next week, but, uh, but we'll give just a brief explanation of what things, uh, what, what's going on here, just to set kind of a fresh framework. 27, with David happening, um, we left things off last time studying chapter 27 with David as a uh, kind of rogue mercenary in the land of the Philistines under King Achish. And, and we left things last time with Achish thinking that because, uh, because it's what David led him to believe, we left Achish thinking that, that David is raiding the towns of his own people. But David's actually not raiding the towns uh, connected with Judah. Instead, David's been raiding people groups who are Israel's old enemies in the land. Achish, of course, he doesn't know that. So things open in chapter 28 with Achish exalting David to this position of being his personal bodyguard. And the amazing part of that is, is he exalts David to that position as the Philistines are gathering against Israel for battle. 
So clearly, Achish believes that David really has become repulsive to his own people, like he said at the end of chapter 27. And now the Philistines, presuming they have David on their side, who will remember who's a mighty warrior, now they've got David on their side, they've set up some grand battle plans to go against Israel. Of course, we know that David isn't ultimately on the side of the Philistines, but we have to actually wait until chapter 29 to see what happens in relationship to that. Because what the rest of chapter 28 then focuses on is Saul's panicked disintegration. Everything's just falling apart for him. And and the panic starts for Saul, like we read in verse 5, as he sees how the armies of the Philistines had assembled themselves. We're told there in verse 5 that Saul's afraid. And and with good reason, um, from the geographical details that are there, we know that the armies of the Philistines have positioned themselves in the Jezreel Valley, which, which effectively does two things. Uh, First of all, it separates uh, the northern tribes of Israel from the southern tribes of Israel. So you have this massive army separating resources, separating uh, militaries, these kinds of things. So so Israel's very vulnerable geographically because their large enemy is now right in the middle of them. That's, That's one thing that's going on. The second problem with the way they've positioned themselves, the Philistines have positioned themselves, is that this particular area is very conducive to chariot friendly warfare. Uh, a particular kind of fighting that the Philistines were very well equipped for and skilled at, unlike Israel. They weren't. So Saul's rightly panicking. And in his panic, Saul inquires of the Lord as to what he should do in verse 6. But we're told the the Lord has no answer for it. There's no response for Saul from the Lord. And, And we know why the Lord doesn't answer Saul. The Lord's rejected Saul because Saul has continually rejected the word of the Lord. This is just Saul's trajectory now. So this is not new news for us, that God doesn't answer him. Saul's only interested in serving himself. You know, maybe the Lord can can give me a a word of guidance in this battle situation that I'm facing. I'll take any advantage I can get, but there's no word from the Lord. So ironically, while Saul, we're told, had removed the mediums and necromancers from the land of Israel, like verse 3 tells us, because he gets no word from the Lord, Saul ends up sneaking past the Philistine camps, he's got to be sneaky, to Endor. And Endor is one of those towns that was uh, not conquered by Israel upon their entrance into the land of, of, the, of the Canaanites. Although they were supposed to, they didn't conquer it. So Endor has kind of remained an, an outpost Canaanite town with all that, uh, that, that pagan spirituality quite obviously firmly intact. That's what's going on in Endor. And in Endor, there's this woman who would, who would summon the dead for the purposes of, of divining what one should do. And so Saul goes to her, and she calls up Samuel from the dead. The spirit of Samuel then comes up, addresses Saul, and by the time the event is over, the result is not what Saul hoped for. Uh, But in verses 16 to 18, Samuel speaks and ultimately restates what he's already said back when he was functioning as a, a prophet in the land of the living. In chapter 15, Saul restates what he said to Saul and, and then he adds this little bit about tomorrow you, your sons, are, are, are going to be given over into the hands of the Philistines. By tomorrow you and your sons will be with me in the realm of the dead. You're going to die tomorrow. He puts a clock on it. So that interaction comes to an end. Saul's extremely afraid now. He's already afraid in verse 5. Now he's really afraid in verse 20. He falls over filled with fear. And the passage ends with, with actually four repetitions of the word for hearing in Hebrew, which is ironic. Because back in chapter 15, Saul was condemned because he wouldn't hear, he wouldn't listen and obey the word of the Lord. And here now it's the ironic reality that Saul, well, he wouldn't listen to the voice of the Lord throughout his life. Instead, he hears, he listens to the words of the medium as she tries to help him recover. 
He doesn't hear God, but he listens to what the Spiritist says. And by the end of the chapter, the whole account it basically reflects the dark, disintegrating beginning of Saul uh, and his last 24 hours. So, so in that sense, it's a heavy section. It's a sorrowful section, ultimately, in terms of reflecting on Saul's life uh, because, because tomorrow he's going to die. Here's this man who's, who's failed constantly to trust in the Lord, and tomorrow is his day. Um, so, so that, if we just have that in our minds, that's what's going on broadly. Now, we'll look at that more specifically in terms of some, some things we can take from that next week. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we're going to try to make sense of this, of this calling up of the dead business. What, what do we do with the strangeness of what's going on here? And so what we're going to do for today is we're going to try to set this in a broader biblical framework just, just to bring some clarity as to what the Lord reveals about, about this kind of thing. And, and so to do this, we're going to think about Saul's visit to Endor under three headings. And I'll, I'll give them to you from the beginning. Uh, if, if it's helpful, we can think of these headings each as, uh, as, as, as buckets we're going to put some relevant biblical truth into to help us understand this, okay? Uh, and the first heading is, is going to be recognition and condemnation. That'll be heading one or bucket one. We'll put some stuff in that. The second is going to be space and presence, and the third is going to be outcome and interest. So that's how we'll try to, uh, to put things together here. Recognition and condemnation, space and presence, outcome and interest. Okay, so if you have coffee, this is a good time to have a drink because we're going to start. Here we go. Recognition and condemnation. We're going to do that first. Um, part of our initial question for a passage like this is, is the situation real? Did, did, did this even happen? Was this woman that Saul really went to visit uh, actually able to bring up the spirit of Samuel from beyond the grave? The passage makes it clear that Saul's dead, or that Samuel's dead. Was she really able to bring up Samuel's spirit? Uh, now, now, that's a question that's a bit uncomfortable for us, particularly in our Western society in general, though, though in, the, in the place where we live, there's a great deal of spiritual sensitivity, uh, more, than, more than average, we can say that. Uh, but in a, a Western society in general, well, we like to think of ourselves as spiritual people. We do tend to live and think primarily in material ways. Um, the, the realm of the spiritual isn't something that, that most people, at least, uh, tend to give a great deal of attention to. Though where we live, that is, that is uh, uniquely uh, maybe more pronounced than in other places. However, the biblical authors, they have no problem referencing the spiritual realm, including the realm of the dead. Uh, and, when, and when it comes to practicing this kind of divination, this, this portrayed here in our section, the scriptures actually do speak really clearly about the subject. They don't speak exhaustively, but they speak clearly about it. So listen, for example, to how Moses uh, talks to the people of Israel before they enter the land of promise, so before they enter the land of Canaan, where this kind of divination is practiced. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. There's a list. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire. No child sacrifice. Practice divination. Tell fortunes. Interpret omens. Practice sorcery. Cast spells. Consult the medium or spiritist or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So, so, so these practices are recognized 
in the scripture. They're recognized by God as, as being there. However, they're totally condemned. In fact, those practices are the reason that these people groups are under the judgment of God, like we've talked about, as we've seen like the Amalekites, uh, God calling for the, for the destruction of the Amalekites and those kinds of things. This is why they're under that judgment from God. So that's, Moses has that comment. Or how about the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah 8, uh, Isaiah says, When they, that is apostate Judah, when they say to you, inquire of mediums and the spirits, spiritists who chirp and mutter. Apparently that has to do with their incantations. Who chirp and mutter. Shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And Isaiah says this. Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. So again, the hope for life, the hope for dawn, in this case, in Isaiah's case, for restoration and renewal of God's people is only through what God says, not through any kind of consultation of the dead or something like that. Leviticus 20, just to give you, give you one more. Moses there again, he says, whoever turns to mediums or spiritists and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from my people. So see, when it comes to this kind of practice that Saul is seeking to engage in here, that the Scriptures, God's inspired Word, they completely condemn the practice. So there's total condemnation of this kind of spiritual engagement. However, the Scriptures, you notice, they don't say that mediums are fake. You see that? Right? We're not told this practice doesn't bring about real effect. What we're told is that to engage in this practice is condemned by God because it's like committing a kind of spiritual prostitution. It's aligning oneself with spiritual practices that are not your spouse, so to speak. They are not you being faithful to the Lord. So when we put these verses together like this, we see that the Bible does not call these practices fake. There's recognition here, but there's also condemnation. Don't, don't practice these things. So in speaking about this, one, uh, one Old Testament scholar, he puts it this way. He says, the Bible prohibits necromancy, in this case, the calling of the, on the dead, not because it is a hoax, but because it promotes reliance on supernatural guidance from some source other than the Lord. So around this topic in the Bible, there's a recognition that something is really going on through these mediums. In fact, the Hebrew word translated here is, it depends on your translation, maybe spiritus or necromancy. It, it just means the one with knowledge. Okay? So something's going on here. But while it's recognized in Scripture, it's also totally condemned because looking for alternatives to the Lord's Word are, are nothing less than, than a betrayal of our relationship with God. It's a betrayal of our trust in the fact that God promises care, which is why Moses says it's like going to a prostitute. Right? So, 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 we, we get through that part, and we do have to ask what kind of application is here for us, other than to acknowledge that at least in this weird situation in 1 Samuel 28, that there is a reality reflected here. The Scriptures acknowledge that it is a real and condemned practice, but, but what do we do with this? What kind of benefit is there for us in thinking through this? Saul's going outside God's revealed truth, seeking alternative spiritual practice for direction in his life. Uh, what, what, what do we make of this? Well, we can, we can make application along present-day lines, uh, and, and it's actually not too hard to, to make that jump. For example, uh, you, you can walk about four blocks down 13th this afternoon, and you can, you can have a, a tarot card reading. So, uh, based on the energy reflected in the cards drawn for you, the reader will provide you insight into your own situation. In fact, it may be even accurate insight. 
Uh, demons are fine predictors of human nature. Uh, it may be accurate or it may be wrong, but that's not the point. The point is that as we engage in something of this sort, we're rejecting a posture of trust in the guidance of God. Same thing is true of zodiac signs. It may, it may tell you if you're compatible or not in a relationship. That person may be right for you. That person may be wrong, but that's not God's guidance. God calls us to, to open his word and ask if the person loves Jesus. You know, do they demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Things like, like love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, that's the truth we move forward with as we make relationship decisions, not whether the person is a Pisces or a Gemini. Or, or to speak of this in another way, we get out of bed each day not based on a horoscope reading that tells us good things are waiting, and we don't stay in bed on a day because it says bad things are ahead. No, we get out of bed each day under the guidance of God because in the revealed guidance of God, he says on this particular day, just as on every other day, nothing can separate you from my love. This is the day that I have made and I have purpose for you in this life as I continue to give you life according to the glories I've planned for Christ. That, that's the call we respond to and that's, the, and that's the comfort we have. So it's not that this stuff isn't real. It's just that it's adulterous, spiritually speaking. Right? So, so, so back to the, to the passage, knowing this is real helps us make sense of the fact that Samuel actually appears, and we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, uh, but knowing that the Lord condemns this practice helps us make sense also of Saul's death sentence by the time the chapter ends. He, he's, he's done after this. Okay? So we'll, we'll, we'll call it good on that part. Recognition and condemnation. That's there. Uh, secondly, let's say something about space and presence as it relates to what's going on here. Space and presence. Now, now we'll just work through a bunch here. I, I hope it helps to clarify rather than confuse. Um, but but let's, let's begin. Let's say, look, look at verse 11, actually, to start out with. We're going to talk about space and presence. Space and presence. Uh, verse 11. Uh, when, when, it sure sounds like they're having more fun over there than we're having over here. Somebody get a ball out. We'll play catch or something. In, in verse 11, when Saul shows up at the medium's house, he asks her, you notice this, he asks her to bring up Samuel. Bring up. So, so that's spatial language there. there. There's at least figurative geography, at least, for describing the spiritual realm of the dead as being down. <laughs> bring Samuel up, uh, Saul says. Then in verse 13, when the spirit of Samuel enters the scene, the medium describes him as, as a God coming up out of the earth. Actually, it's, it's plural, it's Elohim in Hebrew, as God's coming up out of the earth. So we don't know whether there's, there's more spirits that come and Samuel's the focus. We don't know what's going on with that plurality, but we do know in the Canaanite belief system that they attribute deity to the dead. So it's no surprise that she refers to Samuel as, as a, one of the gods coming up out of the earth. Uh, but what is here to notice is that Samuel's spirit is said to have come up again. There's that spatial place kind of language again. Um, so file that away for a moment, because along with this spatial kind of language, we have to wonder, is this really the spirit of Samuel? What, what or who is really present here? And as you might imagine, views on this particular, on this particular section abound. Uh, lots of different views. But, but as we read through the section where Samuel speaks, it's pretty hard to deny that the spirit of Samuel is actually present. In verse 15, Samuel, you have to love this, he, asks, he starts by asking, why, why did you disturb me? That sounds like Samuel. He's always grumpy when Saul bugs him, right? Why did you disturb me? Right? And then when Samuel speaks further, answering Saul's question, he says very Samuel-esque kinds of things. In fact, in his words condemning Saul, he basically quotes his own condemnation of Saul's speech from back in chapter 15. 
And then, and then he adds uh, Samuel-esque words about Saul and his son's imminent death. So this sounds like Samuel. And to make that point even more clearly, the God-inspired author of the book refers to Samuel as Samuel. Okay? The narrator is very comfortable saying things like, Then Samuel said to Saul. The inspired author says that. So, so apparently, this isn't merely a vision. And this isn't, uh, one view is that this is a demon pretending to be Samuel, but this isn't, a, this isn't a demon. Samuel refers to Yahweh seven times in his speech to Saul, which remember seven in Hebrew is the number of, of perfection and completeness. He, ref, he refers to Yahweh in this complete kind of way. Demons don't reference the promise-keeping name of God to underpin his unchanging truth and judgment. That's just not what demons do. Right? This isn't a demon. This isn't a trance that Saul's in. The spirit of Samuel has come up. He's present. And as we put this presence component together with the spatial element that's reflected here, this coincides with what the Bible reveals to us about the state of people after death. So, throughout the Old Testament, in many different places, we read how those who who die are physically buried, but then their soul or spirit goes down. Samuel's called up, remember? Um, but, but, but upon death, the spirit of the deceased goes down to the realm of the dead, which is referred to as Sheol in the Old Testament. Uh, the, name, the name Hades is the Greek word for this in the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, in Genesis 41, Jacob can speak and say things like, in his gray hair, he's going to go down to Sheol in sorrow. Go down to Sheol in sorrow. To die in the Old Testament time frame is described as having your spirit descend to the realm of the dead. Now, there's an a point in all this, I promise, so stick with me. But, but, but in the Bible, this realm of the dead, Sheol, is described as being divided into two parts. It's divided into those into, into a part uh, where those who, who reside in spiritual form, who, who have had faith in Yahweh and His promises, and they are comforted. And then there's, another, there's a division, there's a chasm, and there's the realm of, uh, of the wicked who've rebelled against the Lord, and they're in, in a place of torment. So there's this chasm that exists in Sheol, which is depicted in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 16, if you remember that, between the, the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus references this. Uh, so there's this dividing chasm between the pious, comforted souls and the ungodly, tormented souls under judgment in Sheol. But all are in this realm of the dead. Okay, They're in Sheol. Now, ultimately... We should say this, on the other side of the work of Christ, the the believing, faith-filled, trusting in God's promises side of Sheol has been emptied as Christ led forth a host of death's captives, like we read in Ephesians chapter 4, just to connect some dots, uh, which the psalmist actually points forward to in places like Psalm 49, where he talks about how how the wicked are appointed to Sheol because death will be their shepherd. But then the psalmist can say, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. So like I'll be there, but that's not my final resting place. I'm going to be rescued from that, which ultimately points forward to Christ's work. So so those who died in the faith even then, those who die in the faith now, because of what Jesus has done, are brought into the heavenly presence of Christ. That's just a truth in in the economy of redemptive time at at this moment. And then those in the unrighteous fear of Sheol who have rebelled against God, they await a final day of judgment where they will then face eternal condemnation in hell. So that, just to put it in that kind of frame. Uh, but, but at this Old Testament time and God's purposes, it's important to note that there is this realm of the dead, though it's divided between, between comfort and torment, righteous and unrighteous. Right? And Samuel's called up from there. And we say all that because that makes sense of what Samuel says to Saul in verse 19. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Will be with me now. Now Saul's wicked. 
It's always condemned by God time and time again. Jonathan, Saul's son, who's going to die tomorrow, right? Jonathan, Saul's son, was righteous. He was trusting and yielding to God's choice king. And Samuel was righteous. He was trusting in the promises of God. So how will they all be with Samuel in the realm of the dead? Wicked Saul, righteous, what is going on with that? Well, tomorrow Saul will die and his spirit will be consigned to the sphere of the unrighteous dead and Jonathan will be comforted across the chasm in the sphere of the dead who had faith. Which is why Samuel can speak about being grumpy upon being disturbed. He's at rest. He's in a place of comfort as he awaits ultimately the, the, the climactic work of Christ. But, he, but he's in that place of comfort. So why are you bugging me, Saul? I was having a really fine time. So, 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 so what do we do with all this space and presence stuff? Well, we put a biblical framework around it, and we can understand why Samuel's spirit is, is in a sense, accessible, though ultimately the practice is condemned. But Samuel continues to exist uh, in, in, that, in, that, in that other realm. Um, and, and we can also make sense of why Saul and Samuel will occupy the same general location, at least until the finished work of Christ after death. Uh, which, which this whole framework, it explains things like, you know, Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? They, they're spiritually present in that. They apparently are hailing from the righteous side of Sheol as they appear with Christ. And, and Peter's, Peter sees them and has questions that he shouldn't ask, but he asks them anyway. All that goes on. But, but, but this, is, this is important to think out. And, and, and maybe the bigness of why this is important is just the reminder that the material reality of the here and now is not all there is to consider. Now, now we know that. We believe in, in existence beyond death. But this is a passage that reminds us that, that on one particular day, our life as we know it is going to come to an end. And we will consciously enter the spiritual realm as our bodies are physically buried. And we'll one day rise to a new physicality and a new creation resurrected by the Lord Jesus. But unless the Lord Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will taste the reality of death and enter into this intermediate state, as it's called. Not in Sheol, if we're in Christ, we'll be in His heavenly presence. But this life is not all that there is. It will be done and we will be physically buried and spiritually residing in the heavenly realms while we wait for that final day. Right? For those who are not in Christ, the end, of course, we know is, is, is judgment. For us, it, it's, it's the presence of Christ that we look forward to, the resurrection. For those who are apart from Christ, it's ultimately eternal condemnation. Uh, but we will all face the afterlife. So, so part of the reason uh, a passage like this seems strange to us is because that reality is not something that we consider all that deeply or all that often. Right? And we should. We should. Moses, he calls us to that in Psalm 90. Remember how he says that? Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Right? It's the wise person who doesn't look only at the immediacy of the, of the material now getting lulled into the distracted notion that this is it. No, it's the wise person who looks beyond to the fact that we will all pass through death to what lies beyond. So, Lord, teach us to number our days. Space and presence. There, there is this realm of the dead. And unless Christ returns, one out of one of us will experience that intermediate state. Not with fear, if we're in Christ. Paul says it's better to depart and be with the Lord. There's no, there's no fear in that. Right? It will be a place of rest, extraordinary rest, better rest than even Samuel experienced at this time. But we, we will face these things. 
And that helps to give us perspective. It helps us to rightly understand our mortality. And it helps to remind us that the Bible reveals these things for our own edification. We need to be built up in the reality that the material, the material world is not all that there is. But there is something beyond. And that should compel our own thoughts, our own repentance, all of those kinds of things. Space and presence. Okay. Let's, let's just say one more thing now. So we've got recognition and condemnation. Something about space and presence. We'll say one last quick thing. We'll talk about outcome and interest. Outcome and interest. Uh, Saul consults the spiritist. It's not a hoax. It really happened. It's not pretend. It's not a vision. It's real. And, uh, and let's be honest, that, can't, that, that seems kind of exciting. It's kind of alluring. Are we sure we shouldn't explore this further? I mean, this is literally otherworldly here. Advice and guidance by these alternative spiritual means. It seems exciting. And it does sound exciting. Until we spend some time thinking about the outcome of all of this. Because Saul's not left with an amazed sense of wonder at speaking to Samuel as he appears from beyond the grave. So the end of this narrative is not like, I can't believe I had that experience. That was outstanding. I can't wait to come back here again. Do you have a monthly subscription? No. No, Saul's left devastated. In fact, he's more devastated in a more devastated position than even before. The, the chapter itself, we'll talk about this next week, but it moves Saul from fear to more fear as the narrative goes on. Right? And then later on in the book of Chronicles, which gives an account of Israel's genealogy and kings, um, in 1 Chronicles 10, the writer speaks about Saul's condemnation. At this point, we know Saul's condemned because he's failed to listen to the word of the Lord. We know that from multiple places. By the time we get to 1 Chronicles, the writer adds this little incident as part of the reason for Saul's ultimate condemnation. He went into the medium to seek guidance. So, so this, this exacerbates Saul's doom, this practice here. So the course for Saul's life isn't changed for the better by this visit. He's only accursed further. He's just doomed more. The outcome has not been, been one of clarity and guidance. It's been greater fear, more certain judgment. You know, tomorrow your soul is required for you and same for the boys. And, and, and by the way, Israel is going to be defeated because of you. It's all bad. Right? Which does help us categorize this whole episode in terms of, 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 of outcome, but also what that means for our own interest. Right? Now we've taken a whole sermon on that. On, on all this and whether or not that's been the best idea you can decide for yourselves over lunch but but it is worth noticing here how we're given no details about how the medium brought Samuel up one commentator put it this way he says there's no how-to information for budding necromancers in this passage the writer doesn't satisfy our curiosity even though there are so many more details we might want to know about but we don't have them because while the outcome of this incident is further disaster for Saul, the, 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 the reality of what's here, actually we could say the, the brevity of what's here, the lack of detail in what's here, also helps frame how we should think about our interest in matters such as this. The scriptures are full of amazing truths about the way God's cosmos works, truths about the physical and spiritual realm. But in all of that, there's also a driving interest, not toward the peripheral elements, such as how a, a wicked ghost mistress brings up a spirit from the realm of the dead. That's not what's to occupy our interest. 
Instead, there's a driving interest in one big thing in the Bible, and that big thing being we're to set our eyes on knowing and trusting and following the better king who doesn't, who, do, who doesn't commend the dead as guides, but who effectively relieves us from the grip of death itself. Right? The whole point of the scripture is that while we are dead in sin, that death is not something we turn back to looking for hope. That death is something that we're rescued by climactically in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So the message of the scripture does not dwell on some of these peripheral things that are necessary for, for us to know. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't have revealed them to us. These are good to know. They're good to, to comprehend and study, ourselves, uh, study, study our way through. But ultimately, the message in all of this is look to Jesus, who is the master of the cosmos, spiritual, physical realm, the redeemer of God's people, the conqueror of death and, and, and soon to be the returning uh, king and, and reigning judge over all things. So, so what's here around the medium of, of the Endor and, and uh, medium of Endor and Saul, what's here is for our benefit. It repays us to study these kinds of things out because God's given us this revelation, but we never want to be ultimately distracted by this stuff. Uh, and, and we always have to check our interest because it's so easy to slide into a disordered interest with these kinds of things because quite frankly, it's fascinating but it's not redemptive. It's not the truth that ultimately brings us to a saving knowledge of what it means to be rescued from the realm of death itself. It's enough for us to know the outcome of this kind of disobedience is disaster. And it's enough for us to know that our interest is not ultimately centered on the mysteries of the spiritual realm, but our interest is centered on knowing Christ, who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. We, we, we can even, even feel our need for extra guidance at times in our lives of faith. That can be a very real pressure for us, the pressure soul faces here. And we're going to talk about that a bit, a bit more next week. But in that place of need, we never want to be people who go down destructive, uh, deceptive paths. Instead, we need to be people who go through life at rest because, uh, to quote one of David's most anti-Saul poems, the Lord is my shepherd. Hmm. So that means I won't want. He's the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. He's the one who leads me beside quiet waters. The reality of the scriptures, the reality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts is that we are being constantly called back to putting our trust in the climactic king who comes, reigns, saves, preserves, ultimately provides for our forgiveness from sins, reconciles us to God forever. He's the one who leads and guides us no matter how potent these other things may seem or appear to be. Ultimately, they don't lead from death, from death to life. The lease from death to life is knowing the Lord Jesus and placing our faith in Him. And so as we come to a passage like this, ultimately it does give us a sense of the hopelessness of these kinds of distractions. Uh, there, there's no room for these things because as, 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 as interesting as they may be, where do they leave us? Well, they actually leave us. It's interesting here. Remember how Saul was first described when he was introduced to us in the narrative? Head and shoulders above everybody else. That's how tall he was. The writer uses the exact same language to describe how long Saul laid out on the floor here. Right? The end is nothing. The end is hopelessness. The end is death tomorrow for Saul. And so we're renewed ultimately in our trust in God's promises and his faithful king, and we find ourselves resting in that. And a narrative like this, as strange as it is, it drives us in that direction, just like the rest of the Bible drives us in that direction, and that's where we want to, and that's where we want to remain. So we're thankful to God for his word. We're thankful that we can study it together, uh, and we pray that it's useful. So let's, let's just have a prayer together. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for this word, and we ask that we would be renewed in your truth. We want to see Christ. Uh, we're thankful that he rescues us from the realm of the dead. Ultimately, we look forward to resurrection, physical existence, and a new heaven and a new earth. 
uh, Lord, as you've redeemed us to experience and behold and live out our lives worshiping you. And, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for that hope. And in the meantime, we pray that we would be unwavering in our faith, that we would be steady in our trust, that we would rely upon you, whether the days seem very clear or whether it feels like we're not clear about what to do next. Lord, may we trust in your providential concern for us, your expression of love, and never waver uh, in those things. We ask this ultimately to Christ's glory, who is our good shepherd. Uh, death will not be our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd, and we praise you for that. Amen.